This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. And this year we're exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament when it connects with what's happening in the book of Acts. And Ben, today is exactly one of those scenarios. Paul is a prisoner on a, on a ship sailing for Rome where he's going to be tried before Caesar. But on the way there, they're going to run into a lot of problems with all kinds of storms at sea and all kinds of things taking place. And in, and in today's podcast, I, I want to just look at the island of Crete. The, the ship he's sailing on, to my knowledge, it, it's anchored outside of Crete, never goes on to the island. But I want to use Crete as a jump-off place because Paul either had been there before or was knowledgeable about what took place on Crete because he had sent a man named Titus there. That name's familiar. We have a book of the Bible named Titus. And take a look a little bit about what he said. So it's kind of like it's a tangential connection because the ship he's on is facing a terrible storm and it goes past Crete, but Crete was not forgotten by that by Paul. Now, there were a lot of places, I'm sure, in the that part of the world, the Mediterranean world, where Paul had had connections or traveled or wrote letters that are lost to us. I mean, I, I would guess, I don't know if he ever went there on one of his journeys. Um, it only, the, I, I looked it up in my, my Bible software, it only, the word Crete only appears here in this chapter, Acts 27, and in the book of Titus. So it's not, it doesn't appear anywhere else. I was wondering, like, did he go there? And I missed it and forgot it. You ever, do you know anything more about like his connection with Crete that, that, that jumps to your mind that, that, that comes up to, to you before we just jump into this? I'm putting you on the spot, but it's okay if you don't know, because I'm admitting, I don't know any more about his relationship with the people of Crete. Uh, yes. I don't know so much about Paul, but what I would say is that there's a, there's a possibility maybe that Paul brought the gospel there, but what I, what I think potentially happened was that, uh, Cretans are mentioned in the, the, the group that Peter proclaimed the gospel to at Pentecost. There are Cretans that are, are mentioned, uh, oh, in I chapter two. About that. And so, uh, yeah, in, in the list um, where he says, uh, where Luke records, um, he said, then how is it that each of us hears them uh, in his own uh, native language? And then he starts listing all of the residents of different places that are in the crowd. And uh, and what we see there is that Cretans are mentioned as uh, listed in uh, in the crowd there. And so there's, there's a good possibility. I think this is honestly how the gospel spread to Rome is that there were people from Rome in the crowd that day who I believe took the gospel back, uh, to Rome. And I think that honestly, the, the gospel may have actually originated in Crete from the folks who returned post Pentecost, who had come to receive Jesus Christ, who then brought the gospel uh, to the Island. That's pretty cool. So we're we're back to where we started this year, this year's podcasts on, on the study with what took place there on Pentecost Day, and it spread all over the world. That's that's pretty cool. I had forgotten about that. I I do know that it, 
just jumping ahead for a moment in Titus 1, verse 12, that Paul says one of Crete's own prophets has said it, and he quotes, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Now, that's, um, that's kind of a, a broad swipe at people who are Cretans, but the, the term is still around today, isn't it? Right? You that's call right. somebody a Cretan, Cretan. Yep. it's still around. Did, you, did your uh, grandma or anybody ever, or, you know, your teacher ever call you a Cretan or anything Yeah, like? yeah, at different points, for sure. It was probably, yeah, characteristic yeah. of my behavior. I think I remember being called a Cretan a couple, a couple times yeah. and didn't know what it was, but that's a that's some weird thing to endure for 2,000 years, isn't it? Like, <laughs> well, I, we still have the term around. Yeah, I think about those things because you, mm. you think about how different different places are, are labeled or people are labeled historically. You know, you think about Thomas, right? I mean, Thomas, 2,000 years later, everybody still refers to Thomas as doubting Thomas. And yet we know that Thomas, you know, left, went to India, uh, was most likely martyred in India for for bearing witness to Christ. And yet... We call him Doubting Thomas. And not only that, all the disciples doubted. Right, right, exactly. He, stuck but with he it. gets stuck with the name. And so we, we think of Crete, which was, I mean, it was kind of like first century Vegas on steroids uh, in a lot of ways. So what happened in Crete stayed in Crete. How, how should we remember you? Like believing Benjamin? Or, <laughs> no, or, or, <laughs> yeah, Lord only knows. Yeah, who who knows? Who knows? Uh, thankfully, I won't have to, you know, my, my name will be lost to the historical record pretty quickly, uh, unlike poor Thomas, who, again, throughout eternity will be known, well, th- at least throughout uh, our earthly, on our earthly sphere, will be known as Doubting Thomas. Yeah, the only so people unfair. that get remembered over time are the people who are exceptionally amazing or exceptionally horrible. Right. And or, the, or the other ninety nine point nine percent of the yeah. world is just etched on a stone somewhere, and yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah, like you think about Thomas, and I'm like, this one moment like comes to for a lot of people define the rest of the guys the guy's life. Or you, you think about a specific place in time, and and again, how you know the island of of Crete, which to my knowledge at least would not be uh, referred to in a similar fashion today. And yet the uh, the name has has stuck. I wonder if they call yeah. their misbehaving kids Cretans. Oh, that's, that's a great a, question. A, hey, when you were growing up in South Louisiana, what did you think of Hoosiers? Do you think it was just like a movie, or do you think of Hoosiers as kind of you know people from Indiana? As I did, there were no no perceptions of people from Indiana. No, honestly, I didn't even know. You didn't know it was a state. No, I knew Indiana was a state. <laughs> and it is funny though, because when I first when I first came here, I had a good friend of mine that that moved to Louisiana when he was a freshman in high school, and uh, he was from Michigan. And when I asked him the first time I came here to visit, because Sherry and I, my wife is you know from Indiana, she's a, a native-born Hoosier, but we met in Chicago, and the first time that I had come to Indiana to to visit with her. Oh, when we were in college, um, I asked my buddy, Mike, I'm like, Mike, I was like, I'm sure you drove through Indiana living, you know, growing up in Michigan. I'm like, what, what's there? What's in Indiana? And he's like, there's a racetrack and there's a whole lot of corn. And he, that, that was his description of Indiana to me. And sure enough, when I landed at the old airport, uh, out, out the, out the window, all I could see were cornfields. There was the airport and it was surrounded by by cornfields. And so like, even when growing up watching, loving the movie Hoosiers, I thought, 
I didn't realize the connection of Hoosier, the name Hoosier to the people of Indiana. I just thought, you know, Indiana University called the Hoosiers, never even thought, why are they named the Hoosiers? But but that's also why a lot of people in Indiana, you know, there's that, that restaurant, Yats, that's a New Orleans restaurant uh, here in central Indiana. And people, most people in Indiana have no clue or understanding why they call it Yats, but it's because people in Louisiana are way yat. And that's, I did not that's know where, that. yeah, that's where the name comes from because when way yat, you know, and so that's where the name comes from, but nobody knows. Yeah, these things. yeah, that's the, that's the derivation of the term Hoosier. They had the same, similar kind of thing. So whether you call your kid a Cretan or a Hoosier or a yat, uh, yat, what is it, yats? Yet, uh, whatever you call them, um, Cretans had a reputation, and we want to just take a look a little bit of that today. We have spent nine minutes talking about nothing, and so it has probably been the most enjoyable nine minutes for our listeners. No doubt it has. <laughs> no, no doubt that it has. So, so, the, so he's on this ship, and the the summation of the story is they um, they set sail for for Rome. It is a long journey to go from what we know as Israel today, from Judea, from Caesarea to, to Rome. And they're kind of bumping along the, the southern part of modern-day Turkey and decide to, to go out into the storm. And Paul keeps telling them, don't do it, but you know he, he's the prisoner. And so the centurion and the captain of the ship <laughs> pull rank, and they say, nope, we're going into the storm. And so they do, and they, they end up down on the coast of Crete. Crete is an island that is southwest of modern-day Turkey, southeast of modern-day Greece. So kind of, you know, it's the Bermuda Triangle there, I guess, because that's a, that's where they end up. And, and Paul says, hey, we need, to, we need to put in here and just like winter in Crete. And they end up not doing it. They, they tried to go a little further down the way ended up getting blown off course, couldn't go winter on the on the, the other end of Crete and got just blown out to the sea and they, they thought they were going to die. And that's, that's for an, another time, another story, if you want to read about the, the journey on the shipwreck. It's pretty fascinating, actually. But I want to really spend our time today in the book of Titus because this, this is a connection to the island of Crete. So in Titus chapter 1... Verse 1, it says this, Paul, he's, he starts off many of his letters naming himself first, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So he sets the foundation, says who he is, some of his credentials, the call of God, and he says, I'm writing this to you, Titus, because Titus was there. And then he goes into the, the heart of it, and it's about leadership in the church. And so there was, it's important for this, this place, wherever Christianity came from, maybe the Acts 2 Pentecost time, maybe others, 
but they needed to have leaders to guide the new people who were becoming followers of Jesus. So in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, The reason I left you, Titus, in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished. I just want to stop there for a minute. What was left unfinished. You know, Ben, I think it's important for us sometimes to to look around at the faith in our in our communities, the faith in the world, the faith in our churches, the faith in in us, and say, what's unfinished? What what needs to be addressed? What's something that we have sort of let go or that we've drifted from? that we need to pay attention to. So I, I love that initial phrase that you might put in order what was left unfinished. What, what do you think? I mean, do we tend to look at the things that are unfinished and take them on? Or do we tend to look at the things that we're doing pretty well or that are successful or that are comfortable and dwell there? You know, I think a lot of times churches get stuck in, in dwelling in routine. And so sometimes we're even kind of blind to the things that we potentially do well. Uh, but beyond that, sometimes I think we get so stuck in the routine or in what we qualify as tradition that we have a tendency to lose an ability to to, to be uh, to, to self-evaluate, to be a little bit more self-aware, um, to measure ourselves against the word. I think there's a, an issue with that, uh, individually, but also corporately, uh, as a body of Christ. And so, you know, when you, when you look at what Paul is calling Titus to do and, and to, uh, the, the work that's unfinished, one of the aspects is to appoint elders, to appoint leaders uh, in the church, and then Paul goes on to give these qualifications for leaders, and I and I look at at churches in general, and one of the one of the things you know you, you think about the routines that that you kind of get into, and how you and ha- the the tendency sometimes to um, look at like leadership structure in a church more through the lens of cultural conditioning rather than biblical conditioning. And so what you find is in a lot of churches, they will look at people's uh, business acumen or they'll look at someone's role beyond the, the walls of the church. An HR person for the personnel committee, That's an accountant right. for the finance committee, That's right. construction person for the trustees. That's right. right? W- which is crazy. I mean, that, that's not what we're called to do. You know, or you look at somebody who is what we might call like uh, successful. Um, by the world standards, and well, that that person needs to be, you know, the head of your elder board or your leadership council or your diaconate or or whatever, and then you know, then other people within the body of Christ get discounted because you know maybe they're a fry cook at McDonald's, but does that mean that the fry cook at McDonald's is not uh, spiritually knowledgeable? Does that mean that that person isn't just their, their hearts, their lives are drenched in the love of Christ and maybe should be in that role. 
And so like when I look at the leadership qualifications that Paul lays out here in Titus and also in, in 1 Timothy, one of the things that really strikes my heart is that churches in the West have this routine of pulling people into leadership, again, to your point, based upon the roles that they have vocationally. And not that, not that there isn't oftentimes a reason why you, know, you might grab somebody that, uh, that is uh, vocationally in HR to come and serve you know, in, our, in our context on a staff parish committee. But the first question isn't, you know, what do you do vocationally? The first question is, tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, we, we've seen that from the get-go in the book of Acts when they had to find a way to run the food pantry and they got people who were not experts in food pantries, but they got people who are spiritually deep. So to, uh, can you read those for us? Like take us through these qualifications in in Titus chapter one. It begins in verse six. And I just think that'd be amazing. Sure. For, Paul says, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but, uh, of but one uh, wife. And so, you know, an elder is going to be someone who is faithful to his or her spouse, um, who has a, 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 a mutual, there's a, a mutual love uh, among the couple. There's a mutual love for Jesus Christ uh, uh, that's existent within the home. He goes on, he says, a man uh, whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So, you know, if someone can't uh, lead their own home, if somebody is not uh, nurturing uh, the hearts of their children, then how can we entrust that person then to lead within the context of the church? And just to back up a hot second, uh, what Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that a, a leader has to be married. Um, Paul himself was not married. You know, we read First Corinthians seven, and for Paul, it was to his advantage that he wasn't married because, as he said, his attention wasn't divided. Um, and so, this isn't saying that someone who isn't married can't serve in a leadership role. Paul wasn't married. Jesus obviously wasn't married, and so that's not what he's saying. But for those who are married, there needs to be faithfulness. They need to be living as God has called them to live. But if you are married. You can't go off having affairs That's and right. remain in leadership in the church. That's right. That's exactly right. And so at that point, you are disqualified uh, from leadership. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so he goes on, describes the, the household uh, as it should be. And then he says, since an overseer uh, is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent not pursuing dishonest gain. And so, you know, the person who is going to be in leadership is someone whose life is not compartmentalized to where they are one way within the body of Christ and then in their vocational life or their home life, they're another way. That What Paul is saying is, you know, the person that is prime and ripe for leadership is someone whose heart is ripe in Jesus Christ, whose identity is fixed in Jesus Christ, that if we walked into their home or we walked into their vocational setting, the, the people that know, uh, you know, he or she, the people that know them intimately well would say, this person loves Jesus. And so, uh, mm. and so that's what Paul is, is communicating here. And again, that's another problem that I think sometimes churches run into is that, again, not having really truly considered the spiritual life of people 
being drafted into leadership or asked into leadership. We just look at um, how they're perceived uh, from a worldly uh, standpoint. And Paul is saying, look, the prime qualification for a leader is what is their relationship with Jesus Christ? That is the first question. And if the, the answer is their relationship with Christ is not where it needs to be or where it should be, and they are not known for the relationship with Christ, then they need not be in leadership within the context. Character is the operative word. I think that we're called to have character, the the character of Christ. And this is not written only about pastors. This is, these are elders. These are leaders in the, in the life of the church that are helping manage the ministry of of a church and, and, and lead in spiritual ways. So when we look at this, like, we're, we're called to have high character, high character people in Christ when we lead the church. Yeah, and it's not just given to leaders. It's not just, well, you know, my aspiration is not leadership within the church, so I can go live however I want. That, that's also not what Paul is saying here. That This is the, the character that should be um, increasing in the lives of every follower of Jesus Christ. These are the things that we should, uh, you know, as Paul is describing it, uh, these are the things that we should be known for or in, in the, the negative characteristics, you know, the things that we should not be, uh, in essence, known for. But he goes on in verse 9, he says, uh, he must hold uh, firmly to the trustworthy message um, as it has been taught so that he or she can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And so, or, or even backing up, sorry, to, to verse eight, let me start there. He says, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly, as I said a second ago, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. You know, so, man, some of those things, Ben, are, they're, a, they're a mouthful. Like if you just take hospitable. Do you have people into your home? Do you have do you have meat do you have meals? Are you do you take people out for lunch? Are you I mean, that you know those are those are big to be upright. What does it mean to be upright in how we speak and how we how we interact in our modern day upright and how we post? I mean, there's a there's a lot to this, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is, and even when you think about you know the the real role of a, a leader in the church is to safeguard the church from false teaching, mm. which again is not something that's necessarily held in high regard uh, within the context of those that are sometimes being asked into leadership within many a churches. And so when, when Paul says, you know, um, uh, he, he can encourage others by sound doctrine, the person who's in leadership is someone who is increasing in their knowledge of the word, who's increasing in their love for Jesus Christ, um, who can discern what false teaching is and can call people to account. And again, a lot of those qualifications, a lot of those characteristics are not necessarily considered um, when churches are discerning who is it that should be in leadership. Yeah, good point. I think, you know, if, if Crete had this reputation that Paul's quoting, uh, 
Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. I suppose that would be true of every culture, that deception is a part of every culture, brutality, you know, violence is a part of every culture, uh, laziness, when you can get away with it, is part of every culture. And there's a recognition that Paul has for them on that island and for the cities that are on the island. And I think it's probably applicable to all of us that if the church is going to have an impact in a culture which exists, to, many cultures, to get ahead, to, to be the best culture, and, or, to, or individuals to be people who rise up in that, in that culture, he knows that the church, in order to have any impact, has to have really good leadership in place that can guide the church through it. That's my, my simple way of, of looking at it, if that makes any sense. No, and, and that's exactly right. And so the, the people of God are called, you know, holy. And part of and, an aspect of holiness is the idea of being set apart. And so, you know, God is holy. God is set apart from humanity in his holiness. He is pure. He is righteous. He is untouched by humanity's sin. Uh, from that standpoint, we are called to be his set-apart ones, his holy ones. And so our lives are supposed to reflect that set-apartness and that our lives are increasingly reflecting that set-apartness. And so, yeah, the church itself is not supposed to look like the surrounding culture. We're supposed to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be the church collectively as an outpost to God's kingdom uh, in this world. And so collectively and individually, we are called to be growing in the likeness of Christ. And as, uh, as we've said multiple times before, uh, the church is a sanctifying community that is growing up in the character of Christ that is growing uh, more faithfully into the call of Christ to go and make disciples. Um, the church is a, a body that is more fully uh, imaging Christ. So the church is not supposed to be Cretans in order to be palatable to Cretans. We are supposed to be Christ-like in order to influence the Cretan cultures in which we all live. Something like that. Yeah, because it's what ultimately empowers our witness for Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, if we just look at the culture around us and that that's what we're imaging, that's what we're reflecting, we, we have nothing to offer uh, the world. And so the more we live as these set-apart ones that are reflecting the, the character in, in the person of Jesus Christ, the more our, our witness for Jesus Christ is going to be empowered because with all the dysfunction that any church w will have, um, we will still be that foretaste of heaven. And we're able to image that, you know, and so we're imaging what Christ has called us to image, and that does. That's what empowers our witness. And that, that's the problem, I think, a lot of times in churches is we, we think— how can we appeal to the people beyond the walls? How can we uh, get people to, know, to notice us? How can we get people to walk through the doors of the church? And the, the thing that, that really, uh, according to Scripture and according to Jesus, you know, go, go read John 17. I mean, what ultimately is going to get people to take notice is this growth in 
the likeness of, of Jesus Christ. And yet we go search for every means under the sun. And a lot of times those means are born that have nothing to do with Christianity, have nothing to do with Christ, but are born more of cultural means to be an influencer. Well, there's, there's a much more to look at in the book of Titus and encourage our listeners to do that. It's a short book, but there, it's packed with, with good insights for what it means to be the Church of Jesus Christ in the world today. Next time, we're going to take a glimpse at Paul's arrival in Rome after the, the long ship journey, and then we're going to begin a discussion for several weeks on the book of Romans. So until then, we encourage you to stay up to date with these podcasts, and if you'd like to learn more about our ministry that we're, we're doing here, go to fishersumc.org and click on the Be On Mission link. Until next time, may God bless everyone.